Hello again, everyone. So glad you decided to tune in. Part 10, the history of Xinjiang. And finally, in this episode, for the first time since the beauty of Lolan graced our podcast in part one, this land will officially be given that Xinjiang moniker, a place with so many past names that had endured so many conquerors and transformations over the millennia. Everything starts to take on a more familiar shape now. Events that happened in Xinjiang during this Qing Dynasty era ended up having a recognizable direct influence on today's Xinjiang. We're going to enter relatively modern times, for Chinese history that is, the 1700s. Kangxi, Yongzheng, Qianlong. Not even the New York Yankees of the late 1920s had a lineup like that. The Qing will never again see better days than these. And the map of China, by the time these three Manchu Qing emperors get done with it, will never look bigger and better. In a relatively short period of time, the landmass of China will double in size, with Tibet, Xinjiang, Taiwan, Mongolia, and Manchuria all packed on top of the core lands of northern and southern China. In fact, if you peel away Outer Mongolia, the map of China during the Qing Dynasty... Looks pretty much like today's map of the PRC. I'm getting ahead of myself. Just offering a taste of what's to come. We left off last time in 1689. Galdan was the ruler of the Tsongars, and did he ever have grand designs for his state? After everything had been worked out between China and Russia and the Treaty of Nerchinsk, and the dust had settled, and the Khalkha Mongols were all on the Qing Empire side of the new border... That's when the Kangxi Emperor decided to rid his empire of this menace in the northwest and grab all that Tsungar territory for the greatness and glory of his own Qing Empire. And that turned out to be another case of easier said than done. Galdan's grand vision had one big strategic problem, and this is going to doom the Tsungar Khanate in the end. They were hemmed in from all directions by Russia, Tibet, and China. And Galdan went to great lengths to make alliances with the Russians, but they knew who buttered their bread, and the Russians didn't want to do anything that was going to put a crimp in their fur trading business with China. Let's face it, the Tsungar state hardly had the merchandise bounty that China had to offer, so from the beginning they didn't have a lot to bargain with. So after the Treaty of Nerchinsk with the Tsungars in a tight spot, that's when the Kangxi Emperor decided in July of 1690 to mount a campaign to put an end to what the Tsungars had going on in China's northwest border. And furthermore, because if you want something done right, you best do it yourself, he was going to lead 60,000 Qing troops in this campaign personally. And when the first battle ensued, Galdan, though far outnumbered, gave the Qing army a bit of a drubbing. And using his home field advantage, so to speak, Galdan ran the Qing army all over the place and played rope-a-dope with them until things concluded with no clear winner on either side. And all the while, Kangxi was stressing out that the Tsungars were going to be able to convince the Russians to ally with them and ruin his best-laid plans. Perhaps the main reason for the Treaty of Nerchins, besides settling borders, was to isolate these Oirat Mongols and their Dzungar Khanate and prevent them from becoming too friendly with Russia. 
But the Qing emperor had nothing to worry about as the Russians didn't see anything in supporting the Tsongars that benefited them, and they opted on the side of China trade versus Galdan military adventurism. On September 3rd, 1690, Kangxi's forces finally caught up with the Tsongars and handed them a defeat at Ulaanbaatar, near where Hebei, Liaoning, and Inner Mongolia all come together, a five-hour drive north of Beijing. After Galdan's army suffered this defeat, he managed to escape and planned to hide out until he could rebuild his military forces, something Kangxi was trying hard to prevent. It took six years, but on April 1st, 1696, Kangxi launched a second campaign that he also led personally, and this time at Jaumando, just east of today's Ulaanbaatar. Galdan's forces were attacked by Kalka Mongols, allied to the Qing. And this ended up being a devastating defeat for Galdan, and with his troops annihilated, he was forced to retreat and find a place to hide. But Kangxi was not going to rest until Galdan was defeated. In full retreat, his army gone and suffering from smallpox, on April 4th, 1697, Galdan died and coughed just over the Xinjiang border in Mongolia, on the other side of the Altai Mountains. Some records say he took his own life by taking poison. No eyewitnesses in those desperate moments could say for sure, but if you read the Chinese version, he killed himself. One of the legends says that after Galdan died, his remains, which had already been cremated, were delivered to the Kangxi Emperor, and so enraged was he about all the headaches Galdan had caused him all those years. He had the ashes and bones of this former Dzungar Khan ground down to a powder and scattered to the winds. Kangxi Emperor, he sure taught Galdan a lesson. Waiting in the wings to take over was Galdan's nephew, who was also his biggest political enemy after the Kangxi Emperor. And this was Tsuang Rabdan. He became the next great power in the Tsongar state. Under his rule, the Tsongars had a nice period where their house was put back in order, and by 1715, after enjoying this small peace dividend, they were in better shape than they had ever been. But everything remained quiet on the Western Front. Nobody was giving anyone any significant trouble yet. Tsuang Rabdan had more manageable dreams than his uncle Galdan. He had one main goal, and that was to build a strong and prosperous Tsongar state, without the empire part. He turned out to be a good ruler and promoted trade rather than warring on his enemies. Now, when it came to China, this is mostly true. But with the Russians, well, more than a few scuffles broke out over trade and the tribute rituals that were supposed to frame and organize the two-way commerce they carried out. In 1713, there had been a false alarm in Tsongaria. It was thought that gold had been discovered. And this had gotten the Russians quite excited, and even Peter the Great was told of this find. The Tsar sent a team to investigate this potential good news. Tsongaria, as this northern half of Xinjiang was called, needed this desperately. They really didn't have anything like the Chinese did, with silk, porcelain, tea, and other manufactures. And they at that time had no idea about all the oil and minerals buried deep under the Tarim Basin. The Russians, of course, had their furs. The Dzungars had nothing of the sort, which always put them at a 
trade disadvantage. So this news that they had struck gold offered great hope. But alas, it wasn't meant to be, despite the ultimate letdown. During the early phase, when Russian interest in Tsongar gold was sky high, Tsawang Rabdan used this opportunity to improve relations with the Russians, and he tried to do a little PR to attract them over to the Tsongar side, but without much to entice them with. In the end, the only thing of value that the Tsongars could make good on was to allow Russians to build forts on Tsongar land. Meanwhile, in the Kangxi Emperor's last years, he was able to see a small victory when the Qing army was able to seize and hold Hami in the north of the Turpan Basin. They held it and controlled it, fighting off a number of raids by Tsongar fighters. By 1718, the Qing had turned this toehold in Hami into the entirety of the Turpan Basin. And this was the first time since the Tang Dynasty that a Chinese empire, albeit ruled by Manchus, had been able to grab onto a piece of Xinjiang. Their opening had come when the local Muslim populace in Hami, who were being oppressed by these Tibetan Buddhist Tsongars, when they invited the Qing army into their region and were only too happy to be taken over by a state other than the Tsongars. So despite all that action, things between the Tsongars, the Russians, and with China remained relatively peaceful into the 1720s and 30s. All three rivals pulled in their horns and focused on trade and making the most out of the often underappreciated benefits of peace. The Qing might not have been engaging in any open confrontations, but they were still busy planning for the future, working on building and maintaining supply lines between core China and the far west. That was always the killer. Even in the 18th century, without motor transportation or railroads, logistics were a nightmare. And moving an army that far through often inhospitable lands, it was always the bane of every general. Even if you made it to Xinjiang alive, you still had to maintain yourself. So creating the infrastructure was well underway for when the time came. For the time being, the Manchu Qing government took a page out of the Tang Dynasty playbook and used this footprint in the Turpan Basin to establish themselves, first utilizing the place as a penal colony to send undesirables from China. Forts were built, followed by the introduction of more civilians to the area. And it didn't take long after that before the Qing ruler peered over the other side of the Tian Shan and started prospecting for future expansion plans in Xinjiang. And in the final couple years of the Kangxi Emperor's life, the Qing went on a campaign to reel in Tibet into the China fold. And thanks to all the political intrigue and infighting going on in Tibet, in 1720, the time was ripe for the Chinese to take advantage of the situation and get set up in Lhasa and start planting some roots. The Tsongars in Tibet and up in Xinjiang obviously didn't like this. They had tried to counter China's moves, but they were outmaneuvered there and ended up getting kicked out of Tibet. From 1723 to 1735, the Yongzheng Emperor ruled from Beijing. Flush with victory in Tibet and with a military government established in Lhasa, he figured now wouldn't be a bad time to head north and go take Xinjiang too. The Qing dynasty was on a roll. 
In popular history, we mostly remember them as the sick man of Asia, the Dongya Bingfu, the facilitators of China's so-called century of humiliation. But in the 1720s, China was anything but that. The government and the military were firing on all 12 cylinders. And also, by the way, gunpowder weapons around this time, early 18th century, really came of age in terms of their destructive powers and accuracy. A new kind of violence was being experienced for the first time on the fields of battle. So with his eyes turned towards Xinjiang, the Yongzheng emperor decided to give the Dzungars an offer, which, if you had to whittle it down to seven words, went like, submit to the great Qing or else. The Dzungars up in the northwest of what is today China, they were never a political or military threat to the Chinese empire, but all the same, they were a pain in the ass to have on China's border, and in the Chinese eyes at least, were a real lousy next-door neighbor. There was always a steady drip of border raids and skirmishes, but the Yongzheng emperor wanted peace, not war, so he was really hoping for a diplomatic solution. But that, like a lot of things, also wasn't meant to be. Tsuang Rabdan was assassinated during a squabble between factions in the Dzungar government. This was in 1727, the year the Treaty of Kyakta was signed. Remember that from CHP 181, early years of Sino-Russian relations? Besides settling on a trading regimen that lasted about a century, the Qing were able to negotiate a deal that ensured the Russians would not support the Dzungars in any of their adventures. So with their leader gone, and with this treaty signed, 1727 wasn't such a great year for the Dzungar nation. And the Kyakta Treaty? Well, if China wanted to go in and make trouble for the Dzungars, the Russians would not be coming to their aid. The next ruler was the son of Tsuang Rabdan. This was Galdan Tsaren. There was a lull in the fighting for a while as both sides waited to see what the future portended. Emperor Yongzheng extended an olive branch to Galdan Tsaren, offering trade concessions in the form of tribute missions and offers to settle border disputes. In making this peace offering, the Qing emperor had only one non-negotiable condition. The Dzungars had to stay out of Tibet. All Yongzheng was doing was simply carrying out the Kangxi emperor's same exact policy of isolating the Dzungars. Like father, like son, Galdan Tsuren realized the Dzungar's strategic position was not at all good and that the door was pretty well closed shut as far as making any deals with the Russians, Tibetans, or Mongols. By 1729, the Dzungars were no longer dealing in good faith with the Manchu-Qing negotiators. That is to say, they weren't willing to accede to China's demands. So the Yongzheng emperor began discussing at the imperial court the destruction of the Dzungars, claiming that they had always been dealing in bad faith and were causing trouble for China going back to Galdan's time. The emperor was livid that all Mongol nations except the Dzungars had already submitted to the Qing. What was taking so long with these particular Mongols in Xinjiang? In April 1729, Yongzheng gave the Qing army marching orders. They started preparing to head west to take down the Dzungars. But then suddenly, two things happened that called a halt to this. First, 
the emperor's brother and key advisor died, and then the Tsungar ruler, Galdan Tsuren, agreed to hand over one of the key rebels who had caused so much grief for the Qing in Tibet. They had been demanding the Tsungar surrender this guy to them, but up till now, they wouldn't give in to this demand. So this rebel got handed over, and for now, the situation was diffused. No one was calling for the destruction of anyone. But Yongzheng will keep hoping to finish the job begun by the Kangxi Emperor. But try as he did, the Tsungars remained too tough an opponent to take down. For the next 20 years, it was relatively quiet, and the Tsungars tried to bide their time, build their strength, and continue to find ways to work around this policy of diplomatic isolation the Qing government had so successfully imposed on them. Then in 1735, the Yongzheng Emperor died, and with him went his dreams of being the one to finish off this troublesome neighbor in the Northwest. He had gone to a lot of time and great expense to vanquish the Dzungars, but in the end, they were still standing. Up next on the dragon throne in Beijing was the long-reigning Qianlong Emperor. His initial plan was to tame the Dzungars through the one thing that mattered to them most— And that was with trade. Tribute trade, of course. It was like a foreign policy and an old, tried, and true way of managing outsiders. By 1739, it had all been worked out, and what followed was 15 years of relative peace. As was their way, the Tsungars started to make a mockery of this whole tribute trade ritual. It was very strictly regimented and followed a prescribed ritual that called for you know, a certain amount of trade missions per trading season and whatnot. And the whole process was supposed to appear, on the outside at least, like tribute trading missions. You know, in my years of trading and manufacturing in China, even I have to say, there were some traders from certain countries, and I will not name names, but they were a pain in the you-know-what It was just their way. They had a certain manner in the way they did things. It was part of their business culture. And as a seller, what else could I do except put up with it? Well, it was sort of like this with the Dzungars. In short, they wore out their welcome with the Qianlong Emperor. And then in 1745, opportunity knocked on the Qianlong Emperor's royal door. The Dzungar ruler, Galdan Tsuren, died suddenly. And his successor was later on assassinated. And of course, in the fallout of all this came a period of political instability in Zungaria, complete with succession crisis. It was very bloody and violent. And with relations deteriorating between the Zungars and the Qing government, and with Qianlong feeling extremely impatient amidst this political crisis, trade was cut off with the Zungars, and the final trade mission finished in 1754. Now the Manchu Qing military started preparing for war. Unlike Grandpa Kangxi, Qianlong never led troops into battle and was more of what you might call an armchair general. He never even got to visit Xinjiang. But he had a vision for that land and what he intended to do with it. And he would not rest until he had finished what his grandfather started at the dawn of the 18th century. The Tsungar leader at this time was Amursana. He was deep in a power struggle when, in a moment of desperation, he sent an envoy to the Qianlong Emperor requesting him to come to his aid. Seeing a perfect opportunity to place himself 
In the middle of this Tsongar power struggle, at the end of 1754, Qianlong sent his army west. And with a little help from the Qing, Amursana had been able to secure the top spot in the Tsongar nation. And for all this support from the Qianlong emperor, Amursana did that one thing that Qing emperors had been demanding going back to Kanxi to submit to China. Amursana did the deed, and with China's support, was able to assume the leadership of the Khanate. And as part of the deal, Qianlong was going to be invited in to have a hand in Zungar affairs. And this was going to be a brand new alliance. But Amursana was thinking one thing, and the Qianlong emperor had something else in mind. Amursana was hoping Qianlong would make him Khan of all Oirat Mongols that comprised the Zungar nation. Qianlong was thinking more about making Amursana only one of four Khans, ruling over the four main Oirat tribes. And there lie the rub. As soon as Amursana realized what the Qianlong emperor had in mind for him, well, he started to have second thoughts and decided if he couldn't get what he wanted, the deal was off and he was not going to submit to the Qing. Imagine how the Qianlong emperor must have felt sending troops to help Amursana in his power struggle, and now this Khan goes and turns his back on the Qing emperor. Amursana surely knew what was coming next, and he started to shop for potential allies, but there were none to be had. The Manchu Qing government had done an admirable job of isolating the Tsongars all these years, offering a piece of China's bounty to anyone thinking about straying to the other side. It works in 2020, and it also worked well for the Qing back then. Who could say no? So what happened next was that Qianlong mobilized his armies and called for an all-out, no-holds-barred, scorched-earth policy. Take no prisoners. The mission was to wipe out the Dzungars. His instructions specifically used the word jiaomian, to exterminate. He meant business this time. Before this all began, Qianlong had to first deal with an uprising by the Khalkha Mongols. They had submitted to the Qing all those years ago, and after all this time had passed, they felt that, well, the benefits they had expected never materialized. So it took till January 1757 to put this Khalkha revolt down. Well, if you ask the Mongols today about this episode in history, they'll call this a patriotic uprising, as far as how China saw it. To them, it was a revolt. Tomato, tomato. And when Qianlong's Qing army bore down on the Zungars, they could never deliver the death punch. And victory was taking much longer than expected. And the Qianlong emperor was breathing fire in his frustration about how long it was taking to capture Amursana. Zungaria was being pulverized in the process, and the emperor called for, well, for lack of a better word, a massacre of the Tsongars, starting with those who had been taken prisoner, and then working the way up slowly to women and children, who, more often than not, were enslaved. By July 1757, Amursana was sick with smallpox, and he knew he wasn't long for this world. He ended up dying two months later in September, after surrendering to the Russians. He was 35. And check this out. When the Qianlong emperor demanded Amursana's remains so that he could get the same pleasure as his ancestor, the Kangxi emperor, 
publicly grinding his vanquished enemy's remains down to dust? Well, the Russians said, Nyet. They wouldn't hand over the body. So the Qianlong Emperor was denied the personal pleasure of inflicting post-death punishment. It was all over by 1758, this conquest of Xinjiang. As for the Tsungars, well, they came to a bad end, I suppose you could say. Starvation quickly followed in the wake of the destruction meted out by the Qing troops. The emperor would not allow any grain or foodstuffs to be sent there. Women were sold into slavery. Emperor Qianlong had a nasty hatred for these people, for all the grief they had caused him and the Qing dynasty. He had concluded, you just couldn't trust them. They submit and then rebel. Time and again, they had to go, and go they did. One Qing-era historian had written of this Dzungar genocide, that of the 600,000 or so Dzungars, numbering several hundred thousand households, 40% died of smallpox, 20% fled to Kazakh lands west of Xinjiang, 30% were outright killed by the Qing army, and the others were enslaved. And for a long time afterward, Zungaria was one big, empty space. Until later on, after it was populated with Manchu bannermen, other Turkic peoples, and Han settlers from the east, mostly from Qinghai next door. And these Zungarian lands also became a convenient dumping ground for disgraced officials and a great number of political figures outmaneuvered by their enemies at the imperial court. Let me quote from Peter Perdue's book, China Marches West, The Qing Conquest of Central Asia. He said, quote, Until this time, the Qing rulers had primarily adopted the time-honored diplomacy of using barbarians to fight barbarians by alternately supporting different factions of nomads against one another, or else they executed individual ringleaders of rebellions. But they had never attempted ethnic genocide before. With this policy, the Qing succeeded in imposing a final solution to China's northwest frontier problems, which lasted for about a century. The Dzungars disappeared as a state and as a people, and the Dzungarian steppe was almost completely depopulated. End quote. Another Qing historian had described the place as, quote, an empty plain for a thousand li with no trace of a man. End quote. So, what happened after that? Well, the war turned out to be easier than the peace. Anyway, you looked at it, Xinjiang was still far away from everywhere in China, except Gansu. A Qing military base was set up in Urumqi, but colonization was going to take time and a lot of money. Land grants, loans, and promises of seed and livestock were offered as incentives to get people moving in that direction. Sort of like uh, the 40 acres and a mule that... William Tecumseh Sherman called for after the American Civil War. And I think I mentioned in one of these past episodes, Xinjiang was huge. Today, the largest province land-wise in China. Even if you took out the Taklamakan Desert, it was still a lot of territory to control. So the immediate policy following the Tsungar conquest was to leave the running of things, for now, to the local Muslim begs and local families who carried enough prestige and dignitas that allowed them to be accepted by the locals as rulers. And these people were called Kojas. In the southern portion of the Tarim Basin, these local Muslim strongmen continued to run affairs 
without any Qing interference. The southern part of Xinjiang was referred to as the Huibu. Hui means Muslim, and Bu means, among other definitions, portion or part. The northern part was called Zungaria, or the Junbu. The task at hand for the Qing dynasty was gargantuan, to say the least. The financial cost of the conquest was such that there was very little left in the treasury to incorporate Xinjiang into the Chinese nation. It was going to take a lot of time and imagination. This was far from the center, geographically mammoth in size, and contained all the logistical headaches you'd expect. And the people there were overwhelmingly not Han Chinese. And this also presented a whole lot of other problems. And just as elements of the U.S. government had said the uh, second Iraq war would pay for itself with oil, well, a similar line of thinking was bandied about by the faction that had called for the annexation of Xinjiang. Measures were implemented that, in theory, would make Xinjiang as self-sufficient as possible so that it would not be a financial burden on the center. This matter had been argued vociferously at the Qing court before the conquest and now afterwards as well. For the immediate time being, the Qing authorities were left with no choice but to use the Karakitai method of governing and left the day-to-day management of each city and town in the hands of the locals. As long as taxes were paid, no one suffered any grief. Initially, the Qing set up a military government based in Yining in the Yili Valley, northwest Xinjiang near the Kazakhstan border. And from this base, the Qing government theoretically administered all of Xinjiang. Additional offices would be set up in more cities. And with the population of Xinjiang being as diverse as it was, culturally and linguistically, the Qing administrators had to really exercise a high degree of flexibility on how they ran things, taking into consideration all the ethnic peculiarities from place to place. This was how they managed the north of Xinjiang. As for the south, they stuck with the begs for the time being. A beg was a Uyghur word that meant a noble, used initially for a Mongol noble, but later used for any Xinjiang aristocrat in the south. They were left in charge and reported to Manchu bannermen who took their orders from Beijing. There were about 300 of these bags all over the province, and after the initial takeover of Xinjiang, they acted as the bureaucrats. The Hakim bags were special because they had been the ones who, if you recall, invited the Qing into Hami and Turpan to help get rid of the Zungars. They had signed up early with the Qing and got to reap the benefits. For the next several decades, a massive campaign was carried out of trying to repopulate the depopulated northern hump of Xinjiang, often called Zungaria. People were brought in from all over to bring the place back to life. This is where Urumqi starts to become the preeminent city in Xinjiang. During the start of the conquest, Urumqi was taken quickly in battle by the Qing in 1755, not yet a place of importance. It won't be till 1831 when the Qing rulers felt ready to start working on the southern half of Xinjiang, allowing Han Chinese settlement in the Tarim Basin for the first time. With all the available incentives, many Chinese looked to Xinjiang as a land of potential opportunity. Everyone knew that, well, while maybe the climate was unbearable, at least it was still in China and not some distant foreign land. And for the enterprising Han from the interior of China, of which there was no shortage, 
there were all kinds of opportunities in trading, services, and merchandising to the local populace. Jade from Khotan had always been a tightly regulated business, but now the unstable environment was perfect for this to be illegally transported east, and smugglers were doing a brisk business. These same places in the southwest of Xinjiang, as they were in Han Wudi's time and all throughout history, Khotan, Yarkhan, Kashgar, despite the on and off unrest, all continued to be great markets and regional trading centers. Do you remember back in the Han Dynasty, they instituted this Tuntian system where Soldiers would create these farms that engaged in agriculture and animal husbandry with the sole purpose of providing for the troops garrisoned out there, allowing them to be self-sufficient and not reliant on the state. The whole notion was reintroduced with great fervor and was scaled up to the nth degree in order to allow the Qing military stationed out there to be self-sustaining for food. And again, these troops were mostly based in the north, in Tsungaria. Well, as far as what happened after the Qianlong Emperor, that is going to have to wait until next episode in part 11. I was worried I'd finish in 11 episodes, but I can tell you with a high degree of authority, this is only going to 12 episodes. The longest series yet here at the CHP. Okay, Patreon.com, everyone. Billions of my patrons have been checking out all the stories from my life and career. Way, way too sordid to tell on this respectable RSS feed. All the details are available on my webpage and show notes, patreon.com slash China History Podcast. Three smackers a month, and you get to, not always, but quite often indeed, get an advanced listen of all the latest CHP episodes, sometimes days before the usual Sunday 5 p.m. L.A. time slot. Teacup.media for links. Okay, that's going to be it for me, this time anyway. For sure, you won't want to miss the next episode. Jakob Beg, the reconquest of Xinjiang, and the great man himself who brought us General Tso's chicken. All for next time. Until then, this be Laszlo Montgomery, the proprietor of this joint, going on 11 years now, wishing that you'll join me next time for another exciting episode of the China History Podcast.